Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We are broadcast on WKXL AM and FM in Concord, New Hampshire, and now at 101.9 in Manchester, the beautiful Gate City. We're available by podcast wherever you find your podcasts. We're really happy to welcome back two friends of the show, Mario Broussard and Alex Ivey who are Senior Vice President and Vice President, respectively, of research at Global Strategy Group, one of the premier polling research and public affair companies in America. They have been running an absolutely fascinating research project, a global, global strategy group's biannual series, The Melting Pot, GSG's ongoing look at racial politics in America. It's intended to take the temperature of Black American, Black America on political issues, social attitudes, and voting behavior. As we observed in Mario and Alex's last appearance on the show, Black Americans are the absolute core. What the Democratic Party turnout engagement from these voters will be absolutely critical to determining the outcome of the elections in 2022 and beyond. It's really important stuff for Democrats and politics in general. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be back. Yeah, great to be back. So uh, most of your recent report focuses on critical race theory, uh, that, that, that little used, if at all, ever used uh, theory, only used occasionally at some law schools and then very rarely. But anyway, I digress. You start off with another hot button issue, defund the police, another great bit of messaging by Democrats. Now, before getting into the specifics of what you looked at in the report on this, what's your sense of the impact of the defund the police issue in 2020? You note it was a major attack point in 2020, similar to the way abolish ICE was used as a major Republican talking point in 2018. Those clever Republicans keep finding semantic twists to, to, to bury Democrats. So what, what are your thoughts? What, what's the report talking about? Well, uh, Paul, last year's, uh, debate, if you call it that, uh, around defunding the police is really the reason that we, uh, that Alex and I uh, initiated this look at critical race theory. Um, we both agree that Democrats were caught fairly flat-footed in 2020 around this issue, and it was weaponized by Republicans against uh, many Democrats. And Democrats of color in particular, but not exclusively. And it didn't matter whether the candidate had publicly come out and said that they were uh, against defunding the police or not. The Republicans painted uh, our candidates with that broad brush um, regardless. Uh, and so we thought that we really needed to be prepared for the same sort of dog whistle attacks from the Republicans in 2022. And um, they made the, uh, the, the topic pretty easy because they've been talking about critical race theory all year long. Um, and so 
you know, we really wanted to take a deep dive into that issue. And, and we, you know, we didn't, you know, we have a perspective, right? We are democratic pollsters and our goal uh, with this research is not necessarily to change hearts and minds uh, about uh, critical race theory. It, it was really more intended to try and figure out um, how to turn the temperature down on, on this issue. Um, we, we aren't naive enough to believe that we're going to change the minds of, uh, of Republicans specifically. Uh, but we, we do feel, we, we did feel that it was important for Democrats to understand how to respond to these, these attacks. So this was really an effort um, around sort of a, a practical approach at responding to these dog whistle attacks. And, and frankly, we intend to use um, this, this series, at least the second installment each year of this series, to really to take a look at these dog whistle issues that the Republicans are going to be putting forth, because we don't anticipate that they're going to stop anytime soon. Well, you know, the way you dive into the defund the police issue in the report was really smart and really interesting. Uh, you did it through a case study that you call A Tale of Two Cities. Very clever and also really informative. Uh, I think that's I think the contrast that you draw there between the fate of the police reform initiatives in Cleveland and Minneapolis is really interesting and not something that I think even most astute political listeners are necessarily familiar with. So one of these was successful, one was not. Could you just tell us what happened with each of these and why? Well, both cities, uh, Minneapolis and Cleveland, had mayoral races um, this cycle. And this issue uh, around police reform was a, a huge issue in both cities. As you would probably expect, um, it was uh, an immense issue in Minneapolis, you know, the place where George Floyd was actually murdered and Derek Chauvin was, um, you know, put on trial and sentenced to 22 years in prison. So police reform was um, top of mind in, in Minneapolis. And Minneapolis is, is an interesting place. Um, we did a, a good amount of research um, this year in the city. And to be frank with you, I didn't know how progressive Minneapolis really was. Um, Minneapolis um, is, I would say, at least uh, or as, uh, as close to uh, a city, a progressive city as San Francisco in, in the country that you can find. Um, wow. And, uh, and Cleveland is less so um, but they too had a, a really um, uh, big field of candidates running for mayor um, in their nonpartisan mayoral election this year, and police reform was an important uh, factor there. In fact, and both cities had uh, uh, initiatives on the ballot. Um, Cleveland was, well, not just Cleveland, actually, most cities across the country have experienced that spike in, in crime and violent crime since 2020. So, you know, on the one hand, we had 
the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020 calling for police reform. And on the other hand, you had folks who were really concerned about crime in their communities. And the debate was, could, could you do both? Can you reform the police and stop crime at the same time? And, and we thought this was a really important test of, of that debate. And in, in Minneapolis, the ballot initiative went down. Right, it it failed. It it, it failed. I think uh, like 60, 40, 58, 42, something like that. But it it failed, and um, and I think a lot of the the big the biggest reason it failed was because of uh, the the chief in the police chief in Minneapolis, who was is very popular with uh with the citizens and i think a lot i mean i think he was popular before but i think he cemented um his place in the city when he got on the stand and and actually testified against derek chauvin in that trial um and there was talk that if the ballot initiative in minneapolis had passed that he would have ended up losing his job um, and then beyond that, he came out against the uh, ballot initiative. And so for all of those reasons, it, it failed. And, and, you know, Minneapolis is a city that is about 85, 86% white, uh, about 10% black. But the white voters in Minneapolis are far more progressive than, um, than the voters even of color in in a place like Cleveland. Yet in Cleveland, police the police reform ballot initiative actually ended up passing. Um, and um, and there it was really supported by the uh, eventual winner of that race, that mayoral race, uh, Justin Bibb. And so in many ways he was linked with that police reform initiative and both um, you know worked in they, they, both campaigns, if you will, worked in tandem. And he was elected and the ballot initiative passed. And now it's a matter of seeing what form it takes um, in Cleveland as he tries to implement it. Um, but I think the jury is really still out uh, on, on defunding the police and police reform more broadly across the country. Um, and I bet we'll probably have some more answers as we get through the 2022 cycle. So um, I was I just came back from beautiful downtown Washington, D.C., where as a former member of Congress, I I visited my old haunts and went to the floor and visited with with my old friends, um, many of whom are kind of down at the mouth about Democratic prospects and some of the buzz going on in the in the in the cloakroom and on the floor was who who retired who retired today um and uh, there were about i i think we're up to about 25 and some of, of my buds were saying oh it's it it's not the end um they're going to be dropping like flies so with with that kind of as a context for at least what's going on um, in in terms of uh, congressional midterms with all these Democratic retirements. And people pointed out that many of those Dems were from safe Democratic seats. So they weren't 
people weren't particularly worried about necessarily losing those seats. But, you know, with all the doom and gloom we've heard about the midterms, are there lessons that Democrats can draw from your tale of two cities and also thinking about the elections in New York for mayor um, uh, in how to deal with defund the police um, uh, if it comes up again? Because, you know, the Republicans are very persistent they're patient, persistent, and aggressive. And who knows? I mean, in addition to critical race theory, they may trot out, defund the police and every other old saw. So uh, what are the lessons that Democrats can draw? Yeah, so I think from a messaging perspective, the lesson is to A, don't call it defund the police. You got to call it something different. The brand is uh, you know, very poor in that respect call it police reform, call it restructuring the police, um, et cetera, but don't call it defund, that's A. B is to pivot um, to something like, you know, we all support the police, they keep us safe, um, you know, but if you're a black man of color, you know, you shouldn't have to be concerned about your safety if you're getting stopped for a, an out taillight or something to that effect. So. Just make sure you pivot away from this this notion that we are, quote, defunding the police. We just want equal treatment, so on and so forth, Um, because the brand is quite weak in that respect. I also think there's there's only so much that the Democratic Party can do um, heading into 2022, just in the sense from a historical perspective. The, the party in power traditionally loses seats in the midterms. So, you know, we saw this in Virginia and much was made about that election, but I really caution folks to overanalyze or overinterpret that result um, just because that's traditionally what's happened if you look at historical trends. So, you know, there, you know, we, we do have to be concerned about these sorts of attacks coming from the right, but um, don't overcorrect in the sense that, uh, you know, we're sort of having to fight the zeitgeist. And that's, that's a really challenging thing to do. Well, most of your report focuses on sort of the uh, dog whistle of this cycle. Uh, it does seem like most of the focus has moved from defund the police, although we could surely see it emerge as an issue again in 2022 to the topic of critical race theory, which was prominent in Virginia, at least in the most recent gubernatorial election. Most of your report focuses there. It seems like in your report, you find that voters really have no idea what it is. So what do voters know about critical race theory and what do they think about it? Well, um, Voters, there's a, about half of voters, a, a, a fair amount of voters think they know what critical race theory is. So when we ask them, um, do they have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of it, they can give, they offer an opinion. Um, but still, there are large swaths of voters who are sort of clueless about what this this thing called CRT or critical race theory really is. And frankly, Paul, I think at the beginning, your description 
it puts you in the upper echelon because you understand um, what this what what this is and what it isn't. <clears throat> and most voters really do not. And you know, when we look back at, at Virginia this year, although critical race theory um, is identified as a big issue in that race um, around education, I really think that um, that that was more about um, the schools and frustration with the, the uh, mandates and school closings and parents having to teach their kids, you know, at home while trying to work at the same time. So I think there was a, there were a lot of things really mixed up in there, um, and it was it was all put in that uh, that sort of catch-all of critical race theory. Um, so, you know, I, I think that most voters think they know what it is, they don't, but it is, it is really a, a proxy um, for other things that are really, have been bothering um, voters and not just parents necessarily. Um, and, and I think that, that that manifested itself in Virginia this year. Um, moving forward, um, I think you're right. It's going to continue to be something that the Republicans focus on. Um, and, you know, we, as I said, we did this, this poll and looked at, at critical race theory, and we thought that telling folks that it's not even taught in schools, that it's a graduate level sort of program, um, and that, um, you know, K to 12 students are not exposed to it, uh, would get the message across, but it, it doesn't. Um, parents and voters, again, because it, it's much more than, than CRT, um, they, th this ba mixed bag of education and, and child rearing issues, uh, combined with the, the, the pandemic, um, you know, they, they were not willing to um, take that and say, oh, okay, you know, that's true. Um, they still wanted it to be um, sort of addressed. So you can't dismiss this, and it has to be um, dealt with uh, in a very sort of straightforward, uh, front-facing way. It's not going to go away, and Democrats are going to have to understand how to deal with it. Yeah, it's not going to go away because it's very politically potent as a uh, right-wing message in the sense that it fractures the Democratic coalition while uniting the Republican coalition. Um, moreover, white battleground voters believe that CRT is about teaching white people that they're bad for stuff that they had no involvement with. Like, I was born generations after the slavery thing. What are you blaming me for? And on the other hand, you know, voters of color uh, view it as sort of teaching real history, et cetera. Um, so it's going to be a very uh, politically potent message going forward just because of what it represents. And it's so charged. So I, I get, as we were talking about before the break, that that uh, the real issue underlying uh, the Republicans' use of critical race theory was about school and who controls uh, what kids learn and how involved parents will be and 
and and who's got the last word on what their education will be like. I mean, I you know, in New Hampshire, we're really familiar with the passions around local control um, of schools and schooling, and um, it is of of real importance to parents and clearly. Um, there is a lot of misunderstanding around what critical race theory is. And however, um, even though there may be misunderstanding and maybe because there is misunderstanding and because um, messaging um, uh, messaging has nothing to do with the truth, really. I mean, most of the time, right? Who cares? Um, but it, it, it seems like one of your critical findings was about how galvanizing an issue critical race theory is. And I, my sense is it's much more motivational for Republicans than for Democrats who are, you know, who, 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 who will explain, like I tried to do at the top of the show, you know, all the reasons why critical race theory really shouldn't matter. Uh, but for Republicans, it's, really motivational. Am, am I getting that right? You are uh, hitting that right, the nail right on, on the head, uh, actually, uh, Paul, because the folks who are really attuned to this uh, critical race theory debate tend to be um, Republicans. Uh, in the study that we conducted, we did a national poll uh, among African-Americans, uh, Latinx voters, and Asian-American voters. And then we included a sample of uh, white battleground voters in the seven uh, senatorial battleground states for 2022. Um, those states include uh, Arizona, Nevada, um, Georgia, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida, and Wisconsin. And so, um, we talked to white voters in those states, white battleground voters in those seven states. And we asked them whether they had a favorable or unfavorable opinion of, uh, of critical race theory. And the one group who offered an opinion more, uh, who were more likely to offer an opinion, either favorable or unfavorable on the issue were Republicans, 67% um, of whom said that they had an unfavorable opinion of, of critical race theory. Only 9% said that they had a, a favorable opinion of, of CRT. So uh, about a quarter of those Republicans said that they weren't sure, that they, they didn't know enough about it. But when you look at other voters, um, even other white uh, battleground voters, but Democrats uh, in the battleground. Almost half of, of Democrats said that they weren't sure. They um, didn't really know uh, enough to offer an opinion. Same was true in communities of color across the country. 38% um, of African-American uh, voters told us they weren't sure. Hispanic voters, the same percent, a similar percentage, 37%. And among Asian uh, American voters, uh, a plurality of 44% told us that they just weren't sure um, and, and didn't have an opinion on this. So this is really something 
that um, is being ginned up on the right, um, in particular um, by Fox News. Um, and it's something that Republicans um, are, are, are really focused on. Other voters, not so much. Um, in fact, among uh, voters of color, uh, that same question, do you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of critical race theory? Among black voters, 42% said they had a favorable opinion. 20% said they had an unfavorable opinion. Among Latinx voters, 36% um, said they had a favorable opinion. 27% said they had an unfavorable opinion. So, you know, that suggests to us that um, while th this, this, uh, this issue has the, uh, the potential to really unite Republicans, unite the right, it also has the potential to, to splinter our coalition, um, our Democratic coalition on the, on the left. Um, and so that's why this is really an important topic and something that we really need to get our heads around uh, as we move into 2022. Well, just to build on that point for a second, first of all, it just occurred to me for the very first time, and, and it's probably occurred to the rest of you because you're smarter, that the very word critical appears in the name of critical race theory. And so, of course, voters who don't know what it is think that this is about them being criticized. That doesn't seem great from a branding standpoint, but regardless... Our most recent guest on Beyond Politics was Eliza Astro of the think tank. Third way, they did focus group research in Virginia following the election there. They issued a report. It garnered a lot of attention. Obviously, any piece of research is just one piece of a larger puzzle. And social scientists like you put many pieces together and, and form a full picture. So I, I, I don't necessarily want to overtilt. But what they found sounds to me like it really fits in with your findings in your report. And I just want to uh, quote one piece of it to you and see what you think. It, they find we shouldn't dismiss that CRT isn't real and think we've tackled the issue. Many swing voters knew when pushed by more liberal members of the group that CRT wasn't taught in Virginia schools, but at the same time, they felt like racial and social justice issues were overtaking math, history, and other things. They absolutely want their kids to hear the good and the bad of American history. At the same time, they're worried that racial and cultural issues are taking over the state's curricula. Does that kind of qualitative finding jibe with just your sense, when you look across the whole spectrum of your research, and I know you take in research from other sources, does that does that sort of resonate for you that that's sort of what's going on in the minds of voters? Yeah, I think that is a, a really good encapsulation um, on a qualitative level of what we found on the quantitative level. Um, we, we tested about a dozen different uh, messages to sort of try to turn that temperature down that like I, I mentioned earlier. And um, just as a way to analyze the, the different messaging, we put them into these big buckets. Um, one, uh, and the, the worst performing of those buckets uh, of messages was what we call the dismissive bucket. Um, the bucket that that sort of didn't take it seriously, that talked about um, the fact that CRT isn't, isn't taught in schools, that it's only um, uh, embedded in 
uh, law school and graduate school programs, <clears throat> as well as the fact that, that uh, and pointing out that some folks on the right are really ginning this up as a distraction from, from other issues. Um, but that, those messages really performed the absolute worst among all of the dozen messages that we tested. The ones that ended up testing the best, uh, particularly with those white battleground voters, were, um, were messages that talked about uh, allowing teachers to teach the true and honest facts about our history without being censored by politicians. Uh, Americans do not like censorship and it just feels anti-American. And so even folks on the, on the right can agree that that censorship is not a good thing, right? So, um, so first, that, that notion of censorship um, and censoring what teachers can talk about uh, in the classroom is really offensive to most voters, black, white, Democrat, Republican. Um, but also, you know, at its core, critical race theory is about diversification of the curriculum, adding new perspectives to, um, to the curriculum that, that we've been taught, you know, all these years. And when you reframe the debate and take out those words that you just mentioned, the critical and race, um, and take that out of the debate and reframe it to a diversification of the curriculum, um, that really puts it, you know, takes it out of uh, the, the area where Republicans want to, to, to address this and puts it in much more friendly territory for, uh, for Democrats. Because again, even uh, white Republicans in the battleground, you know, the sort of the, the hardest nuts to crack, if you will, for, uh, for Democrats, um, they too are, you know, lean into their egalitarian uh, values and believe that, yeah, you know, diversification of our curriculum is not a bad thing. Now, one caveat there is that um, th th this issue of critical race theory is often framed uh, in terms of, of African-Americans and black and white, um, teaching about slavery and, and civil rights and Jim Crow. And so what we found was broadening that perspective and not just making this an issue of, uh, of you know, black and white and, and talking about issues uh, like Japanese internment in, 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 uh, during World War II, talking about the history of, uh, of Native Americans and how they've been treated in, in this country and, and you know, making this beyond uh, uh, black and white really goes a long way um, to sort of turn that temperature down. So, you know, the, the, the three-legged stool, if you will, is um, talking about censorship um, and, and, you know, how abhorrent that is, uh, reframing it to diversification of the curriculum uh, and not this, this uh, graduate level, um, 
curriculum that they're afraid is being taught, and then broadening, broadening the, the conversation to include the perspectives of, of Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, and Native Americans. And all of those things can serve in uh, work in concert to turn down the temperature on this issue. And hopefully we won't, you know, if we can start talking about this in that way, we won't see those school board eruptions that we saw um, happened throughout the country from Virginia to Texas um, this year as we move into to the, uh, the midterms. So um, there are other pieces of research out there that we've seen that suggest that a rule of thumb on effective messaging for Dems is to aim for inclusion. That also seems to be a theme um, in what you suggest as um countermeasures on on critical race theory on, on economic issues social justice issues etc i've seen a decent amount of polling suggesting that a message tied to benefiting everybody or a rising tide lifts all boats is a lot better than speaking in terms of a specific demographic or a specific socioeconomic group um what do you make of that is that um something else a good general way for democrats to start to do better on some of the ways they've talked about not just critical race theory but the entire democratic agenda and what i'm what i'm thinking about is a recent interview that matt and i had um with uh tom reston uh, who talked about uh democrats uh, losing their soul getting lost in issues when what we really needed to be talking about was kind of the fundamental values that make us Democrats um, and that that was a way for Democrats to kind of cut through the blather of issue-oriented politics and get back to what is it we really stand for? Yeah, I mean, I think this goes back a little to what uh, you talked about at the top of the show. Um, and. I mean, I think, I think you have to talk about issues. I'm not, I would not argue that Democrats shouldn't talk about issues. It's a matter of which issues you talk about and how you frame them. Um, I think there is a uh, concern among certain sectors of the electorate that Democrats are focused much more on social policy and social issues um, and, and not as focused on economic issues. And, you know, in these times with the cost of living rising, inflation going up, that is really what is on the minds of all voters. And it's, it's not just, uh, you know, right-leaning voters. Left-leaning voters, too, are focused on the economy. And they want to know that their elected leaders are focused on on the economy as well. Um, but I think you hit on the, the, the important word there, which is values. Democrats need to lean into our values because um, our values are frankly shared by folks who don't even realize they share our values. And we have to be able to communicate that uh, in a way, in an effective way to let them know that um, we have our eye on the ball when it comes to the economy, but we, we also believe in certain things like, um, like justice and, and equity. And 
truthfully, that is, those are not bad words, even among Republicans. We just have to understand how to talk about them um, and when to talk about them, how to, you know, what priority to give them. Um, we should always be leading with the economy. Uh, I just, I can't stress that enough. You look at any survey, any poll we do, um, and Alex can attest to this, you know, the economy and economic issues are always at the top of the chart. Um, but, you know, interestingly, issues around voting rights are also near the top for, uh, for Democrats as well. And that's another issue that tends to be framed in terms of, of black and white. Um, and it's, it's really not. Um, white Democrats are also very concerned about these issues. And I would, I would actually add that I'm sure independents are concerned about these, these issues too. And so we do have to lean into our values um, and, and what makes us Democrats, because it, it is very different from the values that Republicans espouse and, and, and focus on. And it's just a, a great way to draw a contrast um, in any race. And I, I don't know if Alex, you wanna add anything to that, but um, yeah, you know, our values are, are critical and we have to, we can't run away from them. Yeah, I mean, we're the party of uh, everyday Americans and inclusivity always beats exclusivity in messaging. Um, I'm reminded of an environmental survey where we tested one message that said, um, you know, people of color are exposed to disproportionate uh, environmental health consequences, et cetera. And the other one said, every American deserves clean air and clean water. And guess which one did better? It was the more universal framing, the, the one that puts everybody on, under the same umbrella. Um, I call it sort of the President Obama messaging school of thought, um, where you sort of speak in more unified terms um, rather than sort of carving out um, segments of the electorate. So definitely agree that uh, with the points that Mario was making a moment ago. And just to build on that for a second, um, especially the, the point about voting rights and voting access, the key question for Democrats entering 2022 is going to be about turnout. Now, you know, in your report, and we talk about it, that CRT, one of the reasons you hear about it on Fox News so much is that it is unifying and galvanizing for Republicans, and it's fracturing for Democrats. And there's this kind of misunderstanding among Democrats that the way to motivate the base is sort of one thing. It's more challenging for Democrats. We're much more of a coalition. It's not just one thing. So let me lay it on you. What is the thing that would motivate turnout from the base for Democrats? Because we saw in Virginia and New Jersey that turnout did pretty well for Democrats. It's just that Republicans turned out like absolute gangbusters. And if Democrats don't match that kind of intensity in 2022, they are really going to get their clocks cleaned. So what what factors would do that? What factors would get Democrats out there? Is there going to be like a thermostatic reaction, especially among black voters of, hey, Republicans are trying to take away our voting rights. Let's let's respond because there's some research that shows that happens. What, what do you think might do it? I think there are a lot of things that that are going to motivate voters. Um, when I think about 
particularly uh, African-American voters who showed up in 2020 in large numbers to elect Joe Biden as president. When you think about the issues that most of those voters had on their minds when they went to the ballot box in 2020, they were issues around police reform. Um, there were issues, um, they, were, they had voting rights issues on their mind, um, equity issues. And just from a sort of objective you know, viewpoint, if you are the average, uh, say, black voter, or even Hispanic voter, or even progressive white voter, who uh, those issues were important to as well. And you look at what has happened in 2021, you don't see a whole lot of progress on, on those issues. So um, I think legislative achievement is can go a long way. Um, and when we were in the field, this was in, uh, we were in the field in October. So this was before any of the, the, the bills had been passed. The infrastructure bill hadn't been passed. The uh, Build Back Better bill, which has, still hasn't um, been passed. Um, and, and, you know, voters were looking and seeing, I'm not sure why we elected Democrats. We have to show them progress. Um, and so, there, so there's that, the, the sort of positive motivational aspect, right? We have to show voters that we uh, prioritize the things that are important to them and why they show up, showed up and voted for Democrats. Um, but then on sort of the more negative side, I think we do have to point out things like the fact that Republicans are um, passing these bills that are trying to pull back voting rights. Um, taking away a woman's right to, to choose. I mean, that's going to be a big issue, I think, in November of 2022. So it's going to be a combination of the two, but everything uh, has to be trumped. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to use that word. Everything must be superseded <laughs> by the economy. The economy is, is foremost in, in voters' minds. So... You know, there are, there are a number of ways to motivate people, but it all starts with the economy. Well, I want to really thank both of you, uh, Alex and Mario, for just another really great deep dive into a set of important issues for, and let's, let's start right here. Let's be inclusive about this. These issues don't just matter to Black Americans. They matter to all of us. And they're also absolutely fascinating. It's, it's just a, a great window into how voters are thinking about these issues that are on the table. So thank you both very much for joining us on Beyond Politics. Thank you for having us. We look forward to coming back. Always a pleasure.